0: This is part two of Emergency Care in Scotland, asthma with Dr Monica McKenna and Stuart Ramsey. So this patient has not improved and we would move on to life-threatening asthma. So I think if I had a patient with mild to moderate asthma exacerbation, and they hadn't improved, they would definitely be going to recess, there would be no question about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, we would usually.
0: And then, if we're looking to define life-threatening asthma, so there's a list here, any one of the following in a patient with severe asthma, so an altered level of consciousness, so why would you have that?
1: Um, So a few reasons, it might be because you are hypotensive, and you're not perfusing your brain.
0: So why would you be hypotensive? So that's low blood pressure?
1: Yeah, so it could be because you're septic. You've got septicemia alongside an asthma exacerbation. You know, you've got a bacterial infection that's caused you to have an asthma attack. Um, It could be that you've got kind of obstructive shock because you're not managing to ventilate properly. Um, And that, uh, we don't see that commonly, but it's something to think about in asthmatic patients.
0: So, shock is defined as a state of circulatory failure characterised by globally impaired tissue perfusion that is insufficient for the needs of the body. I like the definition, uh, lack of end organ perfusion. And we're thinking about obstructive shock here, so there is nothing wrong with the heart, but because of what is happening during an asthma attack, it's likely that either a tension pneumothorax or dynamic hyperinflation of the chest is stopping the heart beating and circulating blood efficiently. So, could you potentially be hypotensive because of the profuse sweating involved during an asthma attack?
1: Um, you could be slightly hypotensive because of that. Yeah, you're working hard, so um, you're expiring a lot. Means that you will become a little bit dehydrated, and then also you're sweating on top of that because of the anxiety. But it's it's more likely to be
0: a a cause from infection.
1: Yeah, it could be an infection, yeah, or or obstructive shock.
0: And we need to look out for cyanosis.
1: Yeah, so um, any patient that's got either peripheral cyanosis in their hands and their limbs or central, you know, around their nose and their lips. What is that? Just being blue.
0: Blue, because you're not getting enough oxygenated blood around your body, so your peripheries have got a blue tinge to them. Mm -hmm. Most easily recognisable in the lips Mm -hmm. and fingernails Mm -hmm. Um, this is quite an important one so a silent chest
1: what is a silent chest? I think um, it could be missed if someone is working very hard and you think they're having an asthma exacerbation but they've got no wheeze uh, and that could throw uh, a clinician into saying well they don't have any wheeze but what it might be is that they've Their airways are so narrow that they're not managing to shift any air in and out of their their airways, which is a really worrying sign. So if you're not hearing anything at all, then you want to be thinking that this patient is really sick.
0: So rather than you've listened to the chest and you're expecting to hear a wheeze, but you don't hear anything, Mm -hmm. and then you think, oh, well, it's not that bad. Mm -hmm. It could be the opposite. The reason they're not hearing a wheeze is because there's not enough air moving. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've definitely had asthma patients and COPD patients who have sounded okay and then I've given them a nebulizer and then they've started to sound dreadful yeah. and they look much worse. Yep. And that's because you've opened up the airways so you can see the work of breathing now.
1: Yes, yeah, so sometimes you you have someone with a silent chest, um, you can't hear any transmitted breath sounds. So you give them a nebulizer or a combined nebulizer or even a few of them and then you start to hear the wheeze. actually you've opened up the ear reason there is some ear getting in there but they've still got a lot of bronchospasm
0: so next on the list is a poor respiratory effort less than 33 percent of a peak flow or best predicted saturations of oxygen saturations of 92 percent or less so we need to look out for a poor respiratory effort and Anyone with SATs less than 92 is automatically life threatening asthma. So I think I can understand why asthma gets underdiagnosed because you could probably have a patient with SATs of less than 92% who looks okay, mm-hmm. and you think, well, maybe they don't really need to go to recess. Mm-hmm. But having looking at this list, I would say it's a certainty now.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah? yeah, yeah, definitely. So we'd want to be starting supplemental oxygen on those patients um, to try and keep their SATs between 94 to 98%.
0: And then we've got some more science coming up here. So we've got a PaO2. What is that?
1: So that's your um, oxygen level in your blood. It's just a more accurate measurement than an oxygen saturation monitor. Um, We do an arterial blood gas on these patients. If, If their oxygen saturations are less than 92, then we tend to do an arterial blood gas, and that'll tell us what patient's... Um, oxygen level is and their carbon dioxide level more accurately and help, help guide our management really.
0: And that would be uh, PaCO2 is your yep. carbon dioxide yep. levels in yep. your blood.
1: Mm-hmm. So that's another marker.
0: And what would you be looking out for? So this, these patients are going to have an extremely fast respirate mm-hmm. They're going to be extremely tired. They mm-hmm. might have an altered le- consciousness level mm-hmm. and What is it that you're going to be looking for in your oxygen levels, your PaO2 and your PaCO2? That's going to make you worried.
1: Actually, probably the most important thing is their their PaCO2. So if it's less than 4.6, which is low, then that's less concerning. If you've got a patient who is very tachypneic, they're working very hard, rest of 40 to 50, and they've got a low carbon dioxide level then then that makes sense you know they're breathing really fast and
0: so when we breathe out we exhale carbon dioxide yeah that's right and then you would expect these patients because they're breathing quickly they're breathing more they're going to have less carbon dioxide in their blood
1: yeah yeah so that would fit with the picture and then it's somewhat reassuring if you see a low carbon dioxide level in the context of someone who's got a really high respiratory, respiratory. rate and then if they've got a normal uh, PA CO2, so between 4.6 to 6, but they're working hard, so they've got a very high respiratory rate, then that starts to worry us because they're not, get, they're not expiring all that CO2. It's actually starting to build up in their blood uh, and indicates that they're not ventilating properly.
0: So when I've seen people having severe asthma attacks, they can breathe in okay, but breathing out is the problem mm-hmm. so it looks like it's very difficult for them to exhale mm-hmm. so what you're saying here is because ox- their CO2 level is normal but they're still breathing very quickly then it's a sign of deterioration you'd expect yep. it to be low but they're breathing quickly but it's not efficient
1: yeah yep. yeah. and then the more worrying sign is when their carbon dioxide level starts to rise mm. um, but that's actually that's then a near fetal asthmatic
0: And would you be giving adrenaline to these patients?
1: We don't tend to. I know it's in your guidance, isn't it?
0: Yes. So we'd be giving 500 micrograms of adrenaline, IM, and on our asthma algorithm, it is... So the algorithm goes, move to a quiet, calm environment, encourage use of own inhaler, administer high levels of oxygen, administer subbutamol using a nebulizer. If no improvement administer ipratropium bromide using a nebulizer, then administer steroids, which would be hydrocortisone, and then you continuously nebulize subutamol and then with it says if you have a patient with life-threatening asthma, administer adrenaline and refer to adrenaline guidelines. So we were talking about this and we think it might be because adrenaline um, asthma and sorry, I'll do that again. So we were talking about this and we think it might be because asthma and anaphylaxis can look very similar towards the end.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think if you saw a patient, um, you don't have that. I should say end. end. So
0: So we were talking about this and we think that the reason we're giving adrenaline pre-hospitally is because life-threatening anaphylaxis and life-threatening asthma would look very similar.
1: Yeah, they would. And I certainly from your point of view, you don't have the access to their patient records um, that we would have. And so if you see someone who's got a wheeze and working very hard and flushed, there's lots of similarities between the two. So I can understand the idea of giving adrenaline in the event that it might actually be an anaphylaxis, because that's what's going to save them.
0: For us, adrenaline is indicated for life-threatening asthma with failing ventilations and continued deterioration despite nebulizer therapy. And the actions are it relieves bronchospasm in acute severe asthma. So that's why we're giving it. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're going to give pre-hospitally. What is it they're going to get in recess?
1: So, in addition to the nebulized bronchodilators and their steroids, we would also give them magnesium sulfate, which is given IV. Through the drip, um, two grams of magnesium over twenty minutes, which causes bronchodilation, so helps, Uh, and we give that very regularly now to asthmatics. Um, And then there's other drugs that we can give uh, in patients who are not improving, and um, they have life-threatening asthma. We'd consider giving them IV salbutamol. So. That is only really inexperienced hands that we would advise that being given, Um, and we had just to have caution because it can cause uh, tachycardia in a patient that might already be tachycardic from their nebulizers plus anxiety. Um, So we normally would give it in a patient, but at the same time we're thinking: Is this patient going to end up in critical care? Um, so we give 250 micrograms slowly um, intravenously to see if that will help but if they're getting to that kind of level then we're thinking this patient's probably headed to HDU or or ITU
0: So they're likely to be intubated?
1: So I think uh, the feeling is is that we try to avoid intubation in asthmatics as much as possible um, because they've got hyperinflation of their lungs anyway um, they're usually very difficult to ventilate once they're intubated. Um, so, everything is thrown at them, including the kitchen sink, medically to try and avoid that. Before that. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, would there be a preference between intubation or eye gel if you did reach that situation?
1: You yeah, know, I think we're going for intubation. Intubation yeah, would be a
0: preference. Yeah. So, we're talking about the chest pressures there. Mm-hmm. so As I was saying before, people having an asthma attack don't really have trouble breathing in, but they have trouble breathing out, and that can lead to bilateral pneumothoraces. Yeah. So, can you explain what that is?
1: So, it's where the lung collapses, um, and in the back of our mind, in dealing with all asthmatic patients, we've always got to consider... Um, that they are at higher risk of pneumothorax Um, and not commonly but it can happen you can get bilateral pneumothoraces Um, so we would obviously want to be listening with our stethoscope Uh, that would guide us as to whether they've got a pneumothorax Um, but the other thing that we can do in yeast is do an ultrasound a chest ultrasound at the bedside Um, that's really pretty sensitive for pneumothorax.
0: And that would stop you needlessly stabbing people with needles. Yeah. 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 So for a pneumothorax, the way I've kind of come to understand it is the pressure on the outside of the lung, inside the chest wall cavity, is greater than the pressure on the inside of the lung which means you're unable to take a breath so the lung is collapsed in that way. Mm -hmm. And then the treatment we have for that is to put a needle with a hole in it Mm -hmm. through one of the intercostal spaces, so the muscle in between your ribs, and that would then relieve the pressure. Yeah. And if we're talking about near fatal asthma, so to define that on the JR Calc, it would say raised PaCO2 and or requiring mechanical ventilation within raised inflation pressures so that's basically what we were talking about there yeah and if there was no improvement of this then unfortunately we're probably going to progress into a cardiac arrest situation yep. and we're going to be dealing with our four h's and four t's so mm-hmm. the main problem is going to be hypoxia mm-hmm. and hopefully if we address the pneumothoraces and we're giving all these drugs, it's going to enable the body to breathe as it was before, and Mm -hmm. then it's going to reverse the cause. So during CPR, there's one thing we have to look out for, and that is because of the raised inflation pressures, during CPR, we're going to manually decompress the chest Mm -hmm. by putting pressure on the rib cage, Mm -hmm. trying to expel some of the air that's trapped in the chest cavity.
1: Yep. Yep. And... What sometimes happens is that the tube is disconnected and that the patient's not ventilated for a few seconds and then pressure is put on the chest just to relieve that gas trapping.
0: And would you need to do that if you had decompressed the chest with a needle?
1: With a needle, possibly. If they've got a chest drain in, which is the definitive feature for a pneumothorax, then... Um, there's, you're less likely to need to do that
0: okay excellent
1: So um, I think the causes of cardiac arrest in asthmatic patients are either that they've got a severe bronchospasm and mucus plug-in which causes asphy- asphyxia or they've got an, a cardiac arrhythmia because of the hypoxia
0: so what is a mucus plug?
1: mucus, stuck in an airway.
0: so you're spit basically yeah, Basically. Mm-hmm. And I had a situation with a quite a young girl, I think she was about five, mm-hmm. and she was having an asthma attack for a couple of days by the sounds of it, and her parents didn't really notice. Mm-hmm. And she was quite unwell, but I took her as a standby, mm-hmm. and her numbers were quite good, so they asked if we could take her up to the main department, not straight into recess, and on the way into resus, I think one of her lungs collapsed and she stopped breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was most likely a uh, bit of mucus blocking mm-hmm. would it have been the whole lung or just a portion of the lung is that enough to collapse it or to stop breathing
1: um, I don't honestly know it's it's usually in a, a larger airway that you would get mucus plugging um, and then that means they're just not getting any air in at all plus the airways are already very narrowed and then you've blocked it off with a bit not basically
0: So it's not just an issue by itself, it's the whole combination combination of
1: it. And then as you said, obviously the other cause of a cardiac arrest and an asthmatic would be your pneumothoraces.
0: And what kind of, when you say arrhythmia, so we're talking about the heart, and what kind of arrhythmia would you expect the heart to go into during?
1: Could be any of them.
0: Any? Yeah. So why would that be?
1: Uh, well, sometimes it's the actual drugs that we've given a patient which could uh, be ca- causing the arrhythmia. So we're giving patients drugs that have the potential to actually cause an arrhythmia themselves. And an arrhythmia is? Uh, abnormal heart rhythm, Okay. Um, which there's lots of different kinds of, but there are some which are fatal, if not treated.
0: And could hypoxia by itself cause an arrhythmia? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we've treated these patients the best we can. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had someone who's in triage. We know what's going to happen with them. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen with your patients who have had acute severe asthma? Mm-hmm. Are they going to get admitted? Or how long should they be expect to be in A&E for?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, they will most certainly be admitted to a respiratory ward or medical ward. Um, if they were a moderate asthma... Um, and had had either an inhaler or one nebulizer, and not required any further then they could go home with an a kind of asthma plan um, and that might be something that they already have agreed with their respiratory physician uh, but it tends to be just general common sense. Do you have an inhaler at home and if they don't then we give them one to go home with. Um, Give them steroids for a few days, oral steroids to go home with, and possibly antibiotics if that's required, and then just a discussion with the patient about what to look out for in case of deterioration to come back to A and E, um, and if not, if they remain stable, then to try and see their GP or their practice nurse, whoever deals with their asthma, in the next few days.
0: So that was mild to moderate asthma. Yep. And then. What's likely to happen with our acute severe asthma patients?
1: Yeah, they'll be admitted to normally to a ward uh, and they might end up on regular nebulizers. So every kind of four to six hours, regular combined nebs.
0: So how long would they expect to be in hospital for?
1: And it depends. It depends how quickly they respond. Uh, it might just be 24 hours. It might be longer than that. Um, the patients that have got acute severe asthma who um, are requiring lots of interventions, then they would tend to have other investigations done, a chest x-ray, some bloods, um, and be monitored pretty closely.
0: And life-threatening and near fatal
1: So, ideally, it's a critical care bed, um, either HDU or ITU, uh, and they don't necessarily get intubated, they try and avoid that as much as possible, but it's just that we want to keep a very close eye on these patients. So you want a, a high-care area where they've got you know one-to-one nursing.
0: They're very unwell. Yes. And if we think about your relationship to the ambulance service, so we would probably speak directly in resus. Yep. And the only other way you we're going to communicate is via PRF. Mm-hmm. So if I bring in a patient with moderate asthma and... I'm going to give them to a triage nurse who's mm-hmm. not going to need to see a doctor immediately mm-hmm. but they might deteriorate mm-hmm. and then later on you might have read my PRF yeah
1: so it's um, probably the most useful uh, bit of information that we have in all our paperwork is the patient's PRF um, and in some departments there's a box where they sit so the junior doctors are encouraged if they can't find the PRF they have to go on the hunt for it Because you really shouldn't be seeing a patient without uh, trying to understand what the circumstances were that brought them in. So who called the ambulance, who was at home, what the home situation was like um, and what the patient was like when they were initially assessed. Because that patient might look absolutely fine in front of them in a cubicle and their numbers might absolutely plumb normal. But when they were picked up by the ambulance, those numbers are very different. Mm -hmm. Um, Then that is really essential information
0: for us? So I think as my career has gone on I've definitely started writing less Mm -hmm. probably because I wrote too much to begin with Mm -hmm. but it's not just the assessment and the treatment part of the PRF you're looking at because you could probably guess what's been given because you know what we're likely to give Mm -hmm. but the information that you're never going to have unless we write it down Mm -hmm. is the home situation and things that we've seen mm-hmm. that you wouldn't get an answer to from the patient yeah as well.
1: so I suppose when we see these patients in recess or any other patient the best bit about it is, is that we get to have a conversation with you guys mm-hmm. and ask those questions what's their family how's the patient coping at home you know functionally what they are like uh, and that's great because we can talk to you about it in person but otherwise the only mode of communication is that piece of paper um, which is like gold dust
0: and it would be really beneficial to put an next of kin's phone number on that as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And especially during COVID, that has been so helpful, especially in an unwell patient and we want to speak to their family as soon as possible.
0: And what about, so on our PRF it says presenting complaint. Mm-hmm. What do you want to see there? Do you want to see our gut instinct? Or do you want to see our medical assessment of the patient or a mixture of the two?
1: Um, A mixture of the two probably because I think if I saw you in recess with a patient you'd say, well, this is what medically I think is wrong with them but probably you're also going to tell me my my instinct (laughs) this is what I've written on the piece of paper my instinct is this is what's going on with the patient and I bet that your instincts are are right a lot of the time
0: So for my PRF I fill in sets of obs and in the additional comments I like to use an S-bar because mm-hmm. I think its flows a bit better mm-hmm. and my brain works a bit better chronologically so I'll do situation, yep. background, assessment and then recommendations and in the background that's when I write home was a mess, mm-hmm. X, Y, Z and then I'll just carry on and the recommendations I'll say I think this is what was wrong, I've given this mm-hmm. and it could have been that and then get laughed at later on
1: no definitely not
0: <laughs> so what about handover and recess mm-hmm. how do you like to receive them
1: yeah I oh. don't know if, if you're with me on this I definitely like the handoff approach yeah which is that has developed pretty well during my career and at the start it was a bit of a <laughs> yeah a jumble
0: so that is everyone arrives in recess if the patient's well enough mm-hmm. to sit on the ambulance trolley they mm-hmm. sit there nobody moves anything or unties any seatbelts yep. and then we give a handover and it's not just to the receiving doctor it's to the whole team yeah
1: definitely so um, you can stand wherever you want obviously I find if people stand at the end of the bed then they end up just talking to me Right. and the nurses are itching to get that <laughs> observation monitor on or to okay. are distracted by
0: other things so i that's interesting because mm-hmm. I started so that would be standing at the foot of the patient mm-hmm. so I stand at the foot of the patient so I can speak to you mm-hmm. and I can look at the patient and then I do a kind of head to toe what I've done mm-hmm. if I've missed anything yeah. but then also I could do that from the head and then I've got to speak to you across people and it's more likely to that's stop true. them Things that annoy you, yeah. and we can all listen together.
1: Yeah, because I think um, it's just to make sure the whole team gets the same story uh, because otherwise, you know, and sometimes uh, the doctors are just as bad for it, are distracted by something else and miss that wee nugget of information yeah. that said, oh no, actually, this patient, you know, isn't using any of their walking aids, or there was no food in the house whatsoever, or it was absolutely freezing, and um, that then kind of influences what happens to that patient
0: yeah. whether they're going to go home back to that situation or if they're going to stay yeah and what about do you like receiving a handover in any format like and we use atmist for trauma i try and use s bar for my handovers and recess that aren't Mm -hmm. trauma Mm -hmm. but i think what i've realized is when you're in the back of the ambulance and you've got your crewmate comes to help you take your patient away mm-hmm. if you just let them get the patient ready and just make sure you've got 5 minutes that you've gone over what you're going to say in your head mm-hmm. if the patient's conscious and you're having a conversation with them i always try and explain what recess is going to look like, why there's going to be so many people there. Yep. And then I'll tell them the handover. Mm-hmm. And nine times out of 10, if I've got something wrong, they're going to tell me I've got something wrong. The patient. The patient will yeah. tell me. So yeah. I'll say, your name's Dave and you're 52. And they'll be like, my name's Joe and I'm 48. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and then we'll call them Dave for the rest. Of yeah. That.
0: Or, and then I'll come, I'll say, have you, like have just history taking. So if you say they've got history of this, they go, no, I've not had mm-hmm. that. Or they go, yeah, I've also had three heart attacks in the last two mm-hmm. weeks. Mm-hmm. You go, you didn't tell me that at the beginning. Yeah. But then it just gives you a little practice run mm-hmm. and then it means you have said it once before you go into research yeah, yeah. and then it makes things a lot easier.
1: Yeah, it's good. I like that. I don't think I have any preferred way of the handover being given and I think that's probably why there's a million other ways that people are trying to come up with because some people like Atmos, some people like SBAR,
0: I heard something that was quite pertinent, mm-hmm. and it was your handover should be a tweet, not a Facebook status. <laughs> so, do you yeah, think sometimes not. there's too much information in handovers?
1: Um, no, no, not necessarily. I think the initial handover with the whole team—you're uh, probably best to keep it short and sweet. Um, but what is really good is actually when you guys come back in see so your chat after we kind of caught up with what we think the situation is, and then. And then I say, "Oh, I can't remember what you said about that." And also, what was it like on his feet? Uh, those those informal handovers. So there. the social
0: history is very important.
1: Yeah, you're getting that, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, especially in COVID times, relatives have not been allowed in the department. Um, patients have become more frail. You know, can't tell us all the personal information. And sometimes, if a patient is extremely unwell, life-threateningly. Then we have to make decisions about realistic medicine and and how much treatment this patient is going to need and whether it's right to give them all that treatment.
0: So a ceiling on a treatment of yeah. somebody with comorbidities and maybe are elderly.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's becoming much more commonplace in medicine. And
0: you need. Do you need the family to, to make, to have a conversation with them, to make decisions? You're obviously, you're going to make decisions medically, yep. but then do you need the family to know for sure that you're doing the right thing? Yes. Uh, you need to be able to speak to the family.
1: Yeah, because yeah. if the patient can't tell us, then the family are the ones that are going to be the advocate for them. Um, and that happens a lot that they've got a clinic letter, you know, from two years ago that says one thing, but actually when you speak to their family, they're, they're, They're not managing to do anything for themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, they're housebound, sometimes they're bedbound and they've got a very poor, you know, quality of life. So it's interesting to speak to the family and also to find out what their wishes are or the patient's patient's wishes when they've had those discussions.
0: Yeah, those are conversations I try and have Mm pre-hospitally and you've got to obviously approach it very carefully. You can't just say, did your dad have a DNR? Do you know what that is? i found that it's quite helpful to ask if they know what a DNR is mm-hmm. and if they don't explain it, but explain that it's not a decision we're trying to get you to make right now. It's just something that you should speak to the hospital about in the future yeah. because you don't want to be making these decisions or you don't want to be asked about this when you don't have a lot of time to decide about these kind of things.
1: Yeah, and I think it's a journey for us as well. So the earlier that process is started, the better because... You know, we don't. Sometimes we don't make that decision immediately. It takes us a few hours, and we catch up with the family. The patient might get better or worse. Sometimes then we discuss it with the medical team, or ITU or HDU, and by the end a decision is made. But it's it's not. Sometimes not a quick decision. So the earlier that you've started those discussions is really helpful for us. We don't have to have an answer, but no. But as long as they've thought about it, because
0: it's a lot to process, and the longer you can, you have to think about it. Mm And I don't think anybody wants to be resuscitated in an elderly age when it's completely futile and nobody wants that for their relatives. So it's only, I think it's only a good thing to be Mm -hmm. speaking to patients and their families about this, Mm -hmm. but not, hopefully not in a way that's going to upset them. Yeah. Right. I think we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much for that.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure.